Hello, listeners. This is your host, Elliot Weisbluth. You are listening to the Hypnothesis Podcast. In today's episode, we had a very special guest, and that guest was Catherine Weisbluth. Now, Catherine is a political science major at Stanford. She has a successful YouTube channel called The Cath Path, centering around topics related to college applications, college life, and, you know, just things around Stanford in general. She's also managed to blow up on TikTok in the last two weeks, garnering nearly 200,000 followers. Already at age 20, she has founded CathPath College Apps, a service offering affordable college essay editing by real students at top schools. She has experience in the UN and international relations, and it made her the perfect candidate to answer the question, what would happen if all the Trump supporters and all the Bernie supporters were stuck on an island? We talk about that. We also talked about essay editing, being a YouTube personality, the culture shock between Ohio and the Bay Area, gender pronouns, American isolationism, reefer in the CIA, and our coolest freckle clusters. Now, Catherine's not just a special guest because of her success in the world, but she's also a special guest because she is my sister. And I must say, it's really hard to call her Catherine, because I grew up knowing her as Katie, and now she's Catherine, and it's got my head all funny, but you know, we're going to go with it, alright? If you're interested in Katie's services, you can find CathPath College Apps by going to their website, cathpathcollegeapps.com. Search them on Google, they're the first search result. If you're interested in the YouTube channel, search the CathPath, and the TikTok handle is the exact same. As far as my shit goes, um, this is the Hypnothesis Podcast, and if you'd like to follow me, I have an Instagram and I have a Twitter, and that is at hypnothesis underscore pod. That is hypnothesis, which apparently is the way everybody pronounces this before they realize that it's not the way that I intended, or maybe it's still the way they pronounce it anyway. Anyway, follow me at hypnothesis underscore pod on Twitter or Instagram, and follow Katie at the Cath Path on YouTube or the Cath Path on TikTok or something like that on Instagram too. <laughs> Guys, I had an absolute blast recording this podcast and I think that you're going to have a blast listening to it too. And with that, this is the Hypnothesis Podcast. Really, time is only experienced by the events which occur within it. And in denying their humanity... We betray our own. No, I won't yield. One of the aspects of God came to the earth, mind you. And look at what's out there. So, let's uh, let's get started here then. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's it's nice having you, or rather, it's nice you having me. Yes, well, welcome to my bedroom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're in we're in a uh, Catherine's room. I have to call you Katie. I'm sorry. You can go ahead. Is that cool? Please. Yeah, yes. it's cool. It's cool. I'm feeling the Ohio vibes today. All right. Well, we'll get into that. So that's that's perfect. Wonderful. So, I, I want to start off with an important question, and that's why why do we look so similar? We do have the same parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but on top of that, you know how when somebody gets a dog, they start to look like their dog? 
I literally have never heard of this in my That's life. That's such a thing. That's such a thing. <laughs> Is it really? That like owners and dogs start to look like each other. Like a, women will dye their hair the color of their dog's hair subconsciously. Like it's the thing. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm so serious. Look That's it up. Amazing. It's such a thing. And I was thinking for the early years of our life, I certainly just followed you around like a puppy. Right. And maybe there was some morphing going on there. I don't oh. know. Oh, See, that's one of those things that it would be really hard to study. Like, Absolutely. Um, I, there's a genetic component. There's an environmental component. Um, but either way, here we are. Yes. Roughly almost 21 and yeah. 23 years. Wow. Um, after after Look that. Look surviving. Yeah. Did, did you ever think when we were growing up as kids that we would be sitting here doing a podcast together? You know... I didn't. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I feel like oftentimes in my career, quote unquote career, yeah. as a, a social media person. <laughs> Is that your official job title? I don't know. What do you, what do you <laughs> well, call me? What? I don't know. I like to call myself a businesswoman. I think Whatever that's good. that means. Dad, Dad actually likes to ask this question a lot. He's always like, did you ever think you'd have a 150,000 followers this or this mm -hmm. or that? It's like, I nobody thinks about that, you know? Like nobody... Right. Nobody is like, yes, my goal is to be famous on TikTok. Like TikTok didn't even exist <laughs> a year ago, you yeah, know? So and maybe it won't exist a year from now. Right. Hopefully. I mean, TikTok's Hopefully. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that your kind of your thing though? TikTok, in, very recently, very recently, mm -hmm, I've, right. I've got on TikTok and yeah. have had a surprising amount of success, which right. has been so great for my business. But uh, TikTok is a stressful place. It's unlike any other platform. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just, I, I feel like it might be wrong to introduce you as a TikTok star <laughs> because the connotation there is like so, so bad, so different from yeah. what, what you actually do. Yes. Um, well, can, let me, can I, can I yeah, say Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So hi, everybody. It's so nice to be talking to you guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We're going to have a great time today. <laughs> yes. My name is Catherine to the public, but most of my friends and family call me Katie. I am a rising, or I'm a junior at Stanford right now. I study political science. That's definitely where I want to go in life, uh, down the political science track. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, I do a lot of work with college admissions and college essays. I have a YouTube channel where I talk about admissions and essays and college life. I have a college essay reviewing business where we try to provide affordable and accessible services. And really the kind of mission statement behind everything I do is making college more accessible. And I've mm -hmm. recently gotten on TikTok. So I've been on YouTube for a few years and uh, accrued about 80,000 subscribers, which has been a great time. But in the week, two weeks that I've been on yeah. TikTok, I'm at 170,000. Yeah. So that's, well, you, you had know. that great video you put out. It, it was good. destined to, to shoot you into stardom because it was it was sweet so that's that's i am now you know do i call myself a tiktoker it's my defining platform i have the most it's your defining it is what like just because it's the most followers i guess like, i don't know is that how you define yourself because i feel like you have such a depth of content in youtube right i, don't, I really don't know what to make of it, it it's such a strange idea that like your my YouTube following grew so authentically and so many of my subscribers I will recognize their name and like know a little bit of their story and oh, feel really? excited for them. Yeah, That's cool. but TikTok is so like user seven six four four zero zero three eight two followed you mm -hmm. and commented you look fat today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, do you get a lot of that? I, Not the I, fat I don't. Thing specifically, I don't. But like trolls. There's there's a good amount of trolls, but they've never really 
bothered me. No. I wouldn't say, I mean, maybe like once a day I'll get a comment that I'm like, all right, this is a troll. Right. Yeah. And it, when that happens, you don't let it get to you. No, I think something really powerful to understand about social media, especially mm-hmm. if you're somebody who's trying to grow a following, is never in life are you going to make a decision or hold an opinion that you're going to go into a room of 50,000 strangers and say, I want every one of you to tell me what you think about this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like you really look to people you respect for their opinions. Yeah. And so I just kind of assume that someone who's taking the time to troll me on YouTube isn't necessarily somebody I would respect in real life. Yeah. I think YouTube trolls probably don't garnish a lot of real real (laughs) life respect in general. Well, it's good to hear that you don't take it too personally. I'm sure it can be easy to get sucked into those comments. And they're overwhelmingly positive yeah. for the most part because you're yeah. really helping people out. I like, like to think so. What did Where did it start, right? Like mm-hmm. you sat down, you got into Stanford. That mm-hmm. was extremely exciting. Yeah. Um, and then you decided to start making videos about it. Like mm-hmm. what, was, what was the process there? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Ohio, as did Elliot. We're, what are we, Ohioans? Yeah. Midwesterners? Hell yeah, brother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeehaw. And at our, at our high school where we're from in Ohio, nobody had gotten into Stanford before, despite um, plenty of attempts. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I went and told our guidance counselor that I wanted to p- apply, mm-hmm. he's the basketball coach. Yeah. So I, he, I don't know he, if you he, was he not about it. I mean, he just he pulled up the list of students who'd gotten accepted to Stanford. and He was like, there's nobody you can try kind of a thing. I don't know. I just felt I felt really, really? unsupported. Yeah. Wow. That is whack. Yeah. I feel like guidance counselors are there not just to offer practical support, but moral support. You know, I shoot for the stars. Right. 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 That's, that's kind of the driving factor to, to get in there. Yeah. I mean, um, you need a guidance counselor that will support you in shooting for the stars while simultaneously making sure that you're applying to safety schools. Like guidance mm-hmm. counselors are really so poorly trained mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily like uh, their fault or anybody's fault, more of a product of, you know, a potentially underfunded public education system, but some schools, the guidance counselors are overwhelmed with just walking students through mental health issues where they don't have anybody else for, you know, Mm -hmm. like some Mm -hmm. schools, it's entirely a separate position for the mental health guidance counselor and the college counselor. So that really just came down to, I felt like I had not a ton of resources and help during my process. I didn't really know where to go. And I actually ended up really not super happy while I was applying to college. I Mm. just felt really like lost and hopeless. And when I made it out on the other side, I was like, wow, I am a privileged white girl from middle-class Ohio. Imagine how much other people from lower income backgrounds or international Mm -hmm. students must be struggling. So I started making videos just about the most basic, straightforward information that I wish I would have had access to. Yeah. What does the common app look like? What does the college (laughs) essay look like? Like the most basic things. Yeah. And your initial reception to that was really positive because there, there are, it's a confusing process. Mm -hmm. As you know, we, we just did a video for Katie's YouTube channel about getting into grad school, Mm -hmm. which I, uh, I provided the content for and it ended up being like 40 minutes of rambling about this huge, intricate process. And and, and we scratched the surface, Mm -hmm. right? It's just really, really deep. Yeah. So what did your audience 
did, did, did you let your audience guide the direction of your video making? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the straightforward answer is yes. Somebody, mm-hmm. I, I always go to the comments to see what people want to see. And that's, that's helpful as a content creator because I don't have, I don't feel a ton of pressure to think of video ideas. Yeah. But as I learned more about the world of college admissions and where specific uh, inequities manifest, I mm-hmm. think I started to gain a knowledge base about, okay, what, what do I need to be putting out there? What do people need to hear? Yeah. Or what do I think they need to hear? So I mm-hmm. think I've definitely started working in a little bit more personalized content but for the most part i i try to make what people want to see right and it's been it's been years now so like you almost have an encyclopedia in your youtube channel of college admissions information and essay writing Mm -hmm. so you started your essay business a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and for the listeners what's the nature of that what's it called right so it's called (laughs) cath path college apps i think the name is really fun and cute i like it a lot it's a great So CathPath College Apps, basically what we do, you know, it it started very naturally. It was my subscribers just sending me an email to my business email saying, hey, will you read my essay? Mm -hmm. And me being like, yeah, of course, why wouldn't I? And as my channel grew and more people started doing that, it was like, you know, I'm a little overwhelmed, like I'll do it for 10 bucks kind of thing. It started really small and, Mm -hmm. you know, the growth was really natural, which is something I I love about the business. But basically what we do is we try to provide um, thorough, affordable services. So what we do is you send us your college essay and I Mm -hmm. have a team of six after next week, 10, I'm hiring, I'm onboarding four new editors this week. And they all are people who have recently been through the admissions process. So that's one thing that sets our service apart is we're students rather than like someone who's been an admissions counselor and retired Mm -hmm. is like they're 60 now. So we're students. And what we do is we go through every single line of your essay and we tell you, you know, here's how you sound here. This isn't flowing. Mm -hmm. Here's how you use semicolon. And then we're going to give you analysis at the end of just here's how somebody who doesn't know you is this is the picture we get of you Mm -hmm. and what really I think sets us apart is first you know we are college students but secondly if you go if you look into admissions counseling and and essay writing and all of that you're looking at paying thousands of dollars to -hmm. go through the process right and there's not financial aid there's not scholarships like some companies like to tote about it but it's it's not what it needs to be and it's it's really bad it's really bad so something Mm -hmm. we really pride ourselves on is how much financial aid we're allowed to offer this season has been going really well we're looking at launching a scholarships program which i'm excited about so yeah it's it's been a lot of fun yeah and it's it's continually growing right Mm -hmm. because you know High schoolers are still worried about their applications. That's only natural. Mm -hmm. How many essays would you say you've read at this point? Thousands. 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 And with the number including your employees as well? Including the employees? Gosh, I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if we're pushing 10,000. I don't know. Mm. I could look. I can look back at, you know, we've done thousands of orders. Yeah. But within those orders every order might have like two to ten essays you Mm -hmm. know so i'd I'd have to look into that i'd be interested to know Mm -hmm. but a good amount you've read thousands of essays yes so you've been around the block been around the block hard you know (laughs) (laughs) um what's the craziest essay you've ever read 
I would say the, the craziest essays we get or the most jarring ones are the ones where like I almost want to, to put something on our website that's like you need to give us a trigger warning if you're going to send us this essay. Wow. Because sometimes we'll get some that are just really intense, mm. either suicide attempts, eating disorders, just things that like I can't believe. I mean, of course, I understand it. Like your your admissions essay, you know, is sometimes the place to mention those things. But it's yeah. just it's really surprising when a stranger trusts you with that information, I guess. So, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. I mean, I guess the college admissions essay for a lot of people, a lot of high schoolers is the first time that they're trying to come to terms uh, in literature, in writing with the adversity that they've faced. Do, do you think a college admissions essay requires an aspect of adversity? Absolutely not. So what I'll say about adversity, it can really, if, if, if that's your story, if that's your truth, that's what you should write about. You know, I think the most mm-hmm. important thing in your college essays is to write about your truth. But what admissions does, most admissions offices work like this, is they'll break your application down into sections. You'll get an, a section for your academics, a section for how you perform personally, a section for your extracurriculars, mm-hmm. and, and they'll score you. Some offices do one to nine, some do one to five, and you know, what they are looking for is somebody who's going to thrive at their school, somebody Mm -hmm. who's going to graduate, somebody they don't want to, I mean, I hate to say it, but spend a ton of resources on whatever that looks like. Mm. So if you're going to, if you're going to approach adversity in your essay, I think the most important thing to do is make sure that you have a positive spin on it. Why am I like giving advice right now? No, I I think I I wanted to get a little bit of that actually, because it's, it's important and a lot of people don't consider it. And if you get some of your uh, listeners on the podcast, they'd love to hear it. I'm sure they would. Yeah. I think, you know, it's so valid to write about your trauma if that's your story, but you know, at the same time, understand that you're applying for a spot at a university where you're going to have to go there and work hard Mm -hmm. and integrate and be away from home. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things things that I never considered that you kind of changed my mindset about is that your application should reflect that you are the person for the uh, position, mm-hmm. right? It's it's like a job application. It's it's the place to convince a group of people that you're the absolute best. Right. And and that isn't very natural to a lot of people who are more meek, who are more like naturally humble. And it for me it was hard to get into that mindset in applications Mm -hmm. right but 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 once i got there you know the looking at it from the admissions perspective became easier and it helped me guide my essays yeah so that was that was um a cool effect yeah i mean you you just got to remember that these universities are trying to curate a class that's going to reflect well on them you know Mm -hmm. you could have ten thousand people apply and they are all the best violin players in the world, but they don't want 10,000 violin players. They want right. one person playing violin and one person who's a speed racer, NASCAR driver, you know? Like, mm-hmm. what about you is going to add that diversity? And are you the best at it? Are you the best there? Like, or paint yeah. yourself as the best? Um, Katie, let's take a quick break. Okay. I forgot to plug my laptop into charge. Okay. Um, this is going to be the part where it goes like... <laughs> <laughs> okay great yeah back to where we are we're so we were talking about the mentality of being admitted Mm -hmm. and 
something I want to get into is like a little bit more of the specifics of essay editing because it's okay. actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's something that people don't really know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, it's fascinating, I think. Okay. So you said um, you have to tell a lot of people how to use a semicolon. Yes. How to use a semicolon. Okay, so please, thank you for asking. <laughs> Our society would be such a more poetic, like intelligent-looking place if we all knew how to use them. I love semicolons. Here's what yeah. they should do. Are you ready? Listen ready. up. Pens out, everybody. <laughs> a semicolon needs to separate two independent clauses, and mm-hmm. that means you need to have a subject and a verb on both sides of your semicolon and it's Ooh. you work it in when two sentences flow well together mm-hmm. so a lot of times i'll tell students you know on their intro sentence they might have like a very short phrase that begins that's like uh baking changed my life and it's like oh mm-hmm. i'm so intrigued but that's not a very substantive intro sentence i need a little bit more for that first sentence yeah so put a semicolon put something funky after mm-hmm. it you know like right. give me something you've got that separation of oh, baking changed your life okay i'm gonna mm-hmm. Respect that for what it is, but there's a little semicolon. There's something actually yeah, a little fluff, little spot, little bit of glow. For your little intros. little glow, a little yes. powdered sugar on top yes. of that baking, whatever that is. All right, that's actually hilarious. So what you're saying essentially is that it's when two sentences are too connected to have a period between them, but the phrasing would be weird, or they're too like separate of ideas for there to be a comma. I mean, you can never have a comma separating two independent clauses or right. two, two complete sentences. So like a comma mm-hmm. can't go between two complete sentences. To- totally. Yeah. But so, so this is hilarious because a semicolon is literally a period and a comma. Interesting. Right. It's, it's kind of metaphorical. I'm looking at this on an axis of like relatedness yes. and it makes perfect sense. I really, it does. Semicolons are, are such a beautiful piece of our language. What about dashes? Oh gosh, here's the thing I'll say about dashes. So mm-hmm. technically they are interchangeable with commas, sometimes semicolons. They add a little spice to your essay in that most people don't use them. Mm-hmm. But there are people out there who are angered to their core by the use of dashes in formal writing. It's like the Oxford comma. People oh. who don't use it aren't going to be mad if it's there but people yeah. who use it if you don't use it they're losing a little bit of respect for you you know wait which side of the the spectrum is the dash on is it safer to use it or no, not to use it i would say don't use the dash don't use the dash i, I don't tell people I love to, dashes. you love it da- okay I love here dashes. i love the dashes <laughs> for their that they have a context yeah i don't put them in college essays Okay. okay. Part, partially because most students don't use them properly. I mean, that's that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it, you it's better safe than sorry. Yeah. But I really just have to shout out to the Dash community real quick because I know you're hurting <laughs> after listening to that one. I'm I'm about it. I love it. I um, support you guys. I'll never be one of you. All right. What about your? You had a great video about this. But what are your biggest essay pet peeves? Like, what are some things you see all the time? Ooh, here we go. So, yeah, let's hear it. Uh, one is when people are adding. All throughout their essay, the words for me, to me, I think, I believe. So mm-hmm. saying, this was a transformative experience for me. Uh, this is your college essay. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse Sir, me. I don't know if I need to <laughs> remind you, like, you don't need to remind me that this was transformative for you. 
Mm-hmm. Cut it out. You're wasting yeah. two words. And when you're doing that 10 times throughout your essay, you're wasting 20 words. That's two sentences right. that you could be using to it's tell hard, me your thoughts and feelings. Too. Yes. Like cut out the for me. Cut out the to me. That's number one. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, second biggest pet peeve is when somebody just throws a curveball. They'll spend their whole essay talking about like how much, you know, they have loved volunteering at a hospital and they're wanting they're going to study medicine whatever. The second to last sentence will be like, "But my volunteer experience actually made me realize that I want to start a nonprofit and do that for the rest of my life." Thank you for reading my essay. Have a good day. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Chill out. Whoa. Uh, third, I don't know if this is a pet peeve, but this is something I just ha- I have to I have to touch on. Yeah. I feel like if it were a pet peeve, I would just claw my eyes out because it's something in nearly every essay, but mm-hmm. a lack of personality in the essays. Okay. Right. And it's, you know, like these admissions officers, you have to remember they're getting so many essays in front of them. Do you want it to be fun? Yes. I want it to be so fun. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a place and a time for fun. If you're writing about your trauma, like give me authenticity, give me like yeah. your emotions and your thoughts and let me in there. But if you're talking about like a really fun experience you had, don't tell me I'm really passionate about biology and I want to continue learning it for the rest of my life. If mm-hmm. the essay prompt is why do you like biology and you start with I'm really passionate about biology, mm-hmm. every single applicant is really passionate about biology. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Why are you passionate about biology? Right. Tell me. Put a little flair in yeah, there. Yeah, put a little of yourself in there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Spicy. Spicy. <laughs> and, and, and glowy. Yeah, we were talking about that before. Yeah, I like that uh, word. On the flip side, um, what... What kind of essays make you think, wow, that was just that was just great. Like when when you read it and you, and your uh, review is positive. Yeah, I think the essays that hit me the hardest are the ones that feel really earnest and mm-hmm. humble and authentic, where somebody's not pretending like they have everything together, but they know what they want and they know what they know where they're headed and they're just saying, you know, here's who I am, here's why I stand out, here's what I care about will you accept me kind of, you know? Yeah. Like somebody just really laying themselves out there and, and putting a full picture of themselves and saying, this is who I am and I, I'm going to be proud of it. And here's where I come from. And here's mm-hmm. what I think about in my free time. And here's what I want to think about when I'm at your university. And like, right. I, I hope that's what you want kind mm-hmm. of thing. Those really nail it. And would you recommend that people write their college admissions essays like tailored to the school they're applying for? Absolutely. And how, how different do you think their application should be between essays for yeah. different schools? So it, it depends certainly on where you're applying and what you want to do. But a lot of times universities will have an essay prompt that says, why Stanford? Why Northwestern? Why yeah. Duke? And it'll give you an opportunity to write like an extra 300 words about why this college. And that's where you want to do as much research as you can because you want to show that you are – interested in that school and research shows you're interested and you know these schools they want admissions is a business and university is a business and Mm -hmm. they want to have a high yield rate they want to accept 100 people and they want to have 90 percent of them come and they have really really thorough models for predicting how many are going to come you know and something Mm -hmm. they really look at is is this person going to come and a great way to show that you're going to go if admitted is to show that you're interested in the school and the best way to do that is show you've done your research Mm, totally so you should be rewriting your why this school essay for every school 
That's a, I think that's great advice. And hopefully our listeners, if they're writing college admissions essays, Mm -hmm. will take it to heart. But, you know, it's kind of a similar thing with writing a cover letter, Mm -hmm. right? Like you don't want to write a cover letter that's too impersonal to the company that you're applying to. I think doing good research, if you're trying to get somewhere with your essays is going to, is going to make you go pretty far. Absolutely. So you've had a decent amount of success success with your YouTube and TikTok and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Anybody ever recognize you? Ah, uh, yeah, yes. What's that? What's the craziest way that anybody's ever like seen okay. you in person? Let's like, think. Shit. <laughs> the most painful was my sophomore year of college. I was at one of the first like big frat parties of the year, mm-hmm. which I don't frequent often, but it was like frat, uh, one of the first ones. Not not a huge frat star, partially <laughs> because of stuff like this, but I was playing a little beer pong, as mm-hmm. one does in college, and yeah. somebody was, like, on the other side of the room and started taking out their phone and, like, filming me with their flash on. What? And it was very apparent that <laughs> they the were, hell? like, just filming me, mm-hmm. and I was like, what on earth are they doing? And I walked over to them, and they were like, are you the cat path? Like, trying to, like just be like oh like oh my gosh are you the cat path nice to meet you and i was like are we just gonna like i I don't even know that's uncomfortable yeah it was and i was just sort of like don't record me i don't even remember it was it's kind of a fuzzy memory yeah (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't a fun time no that sounds yeah so that was bad but uh, you know most people are just really nice i think i just feel so awkward when somebody recognizes me Mm -hmm. because it's like do you watch me or like does your little sister watch me all the time and you just recognize me because you hate my voice so much coming Uh, like blaring out of your sister's room you know yeah like i don't want to thank you for watching because like maybe you don't watch and you're just or like Mm -hmm. it's just weird i don't i never know what to say yeah totally so it, it it was a huge shift for you and and me coming from ohio to like the bay area yeah. and stanford and berkeley what what was the biggest culture shock for you yeah. between ohio and stanford i mean drastically different places very much so politically yeah (laughs) 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 oh boy so (laughs) you know that that hit but i think what i've noticed since we've sort of disbanded from our early since i've disbanded from my university community now that we've Mm -hmm. been living in a pandemic and i've done some reflecting i really expect everyone around me to want to do something big i guess Uh, and i think that might be more specific to stanford Mm -hmm. than to ohio and i would hate to make that generalization about two states but it's just the idea that like most people i meet i'm like what are you working on what is your project what is your grind like there's expect somebody to have right and like we have there's so much privilege to be at stanford to be able to have a grind Mm -hmm. whereas i felt like when i was in ohio a lot of the people I hang out with or like people I worked at the pizza restaurant with, you know, and it's like, if you're working 60 hours a week to make rent, you Mm -hmm. don't, you don't have a grind. Yeah. That that is your grind, you know? Right. So it's a place of privilege to be able to want to work on these big idea projects. Um, I'd I'd imagine, I mean, it's, I found the same thing at Berkeley Mm -hmm. actually. It's like a, a lot of big idea sort of people. And also the inclusivity of this, small corner of the world is insane Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people i think across the entire united states and the world and ohio where we're from that's just the little sample that we had that think this whole like pc thing is kind of a joke and they're not willing to take it seriously Mm -hmm. and 
even I've fallen into some pitfalls of that of that mentality sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's just a product of the people that I was around constantly. Right. Then being inserted here somewhere where it's not a debate, it's just taken as what it is. Right. It's, it, it, it's implemented. Like it, we it is just here. use our pronouns when we introduce ourselves mm-hmm. and that's just it. Like we don't right. even think about it anymore. It, it's so chill. Mm-hmm. It, it really isn't a big deal at all. And and like the uh, the expression that individuals can have as a result of it and to not have to worry about that sort of thing like yeah what what have we really spent a small amount of culture shift a little bit of um experience i don't know it's i i, I was very surprised by mm-hmm. how by how positive that whole environment sort of was yeah definitely me too i think we had to adjust the way we speak and approach questions and think about things you know and yeah. i and i think that's i think it's actually really positive to come from a background where you didn't grow up with that and mm-hmm. acclimate to it because it allows you to have a lot of patience for people on the outside you know because mm-hmm. we were once those people like in ohio i don't think i ever said hi i'm Catherine. i use she her pronouns right I, it was i wouldn't have thought to mm-hmm. it just wasn't part of our consciousness yeah and part of that you know is our own our own fault it's we didn't seek out that information but at the same time like if you're in such a bubble Mm-hmm. like what where why are you going to think to you know and i think totally right that's yeah. something that's really great about social media too is how much it's encouraging people to to get out of their bubbles in a lot of way but now that we're here and we're in mm-hmm. this much different this very different culture of you know what a lot of people like to call pc but i right. almost don't even love that yeah, term it's got a little it kind of has a bit of a negative yeah. connotation yeah right. like to me it doesn't feel PC to use my pronouns when I introduce myself, it just feels like normal or yeah, like an act of yeah. kindness. It's, it's not yeah. above and beyond like the cultural norm. It, yeah. it is the cultural norm. Yeah. And it's very normalizing. It's yeah. very uh, warming. And it's also, it's so nice too. even like, let's say you step into a room or on a Zoom call where everyone is very much like cis straight presenting mm-hmm. and- Wait, I- you should, what is cis? Yes. I, I had no idea what people were talking about when I first so got here. So I am a cis woman and it basically means that my gender identity matches the sex I was born with. Mm-hmm. I think that's and a I, pretty I'm a straight. cis man. Yes. I, I was born a male and I, I identify as a male. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So think of it as like there's trans women and cis women mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's more categories. Don't doubt it. Kind of a there's thing. There's a yeah. lot of categories. A lot of categories. Mm-hmm. And that's something like we're, you know, I, I'm still learning about it. And like, if you just moved here and, and had never heard of those concepts, like it's going to take you a minute to learn. So it's great mm-hmm. to ask questions and ask clarifying questions. But it's yeah. like, you know, even when you're in a room where everyone's very cis presenting and like in Ohio, you would have just assumed everybody's pronouns. Mm-hmm. And let's yeah. say everybody's pronouns does like match their presenting gender. It even is just like almost a comforting thing to hear everyone take the time to be respectful and say like, I'm Catherine, I use she, her, like I'm Jordan, mm-hmm. I use he, him. And then in those situations where their pronouns don't match what your biases might lead you to assume their gender is, it's, you're so thankful that they clarified. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I really wish the practice of introducing with your pronouns was more widespread. And if you're listening to this and you're in Ohio, try it out. 
Yeah, next absolutely. Time, next time that you're, you're you're meeting somebody for the first time, they might look at you a little funny and be like, why are you telling me this, right? right. It's not the normal thing. I, what I wonder is how people who grew up in this culture feel when they hear us say something like that. Like, mm. do they feel offended that, you know, do, do they not understand how outside of the realm it is? Like, I, I wonder what people who grew up acclimated to this think of people who it's so outside of their culture. I don't know. You know, it, the people who come here when it was outside of their culture, it doesn't take long to rein them in mm-hmm. this sort of culture. It mm-hmm. didn't take long for me. That's for sure. Um, but yeah. On the next podcast, a Bay Area local tells us about what they think of outsiders coming in and uh, appropriating their gender pronouns. (laughs) Jesus. I wonder, too, if you have someone who grew up here and was, like, very much used to that. If they move to Ohio, how are they going to introduce themselves? Like, are they going to lose it? That's a great question, actually. Um, I would hope they would be the change they wanted to see in the world. Mm -hmm. So I know... When I go to visit, when I go elsewhere, I'm going to continue this this practice because mm-hmm. it's really fostering a, a positive, good environment. Yeah, I was on a I was on a call, a business call with a, a pretty big company about a new launch that they're having, mm-hmm. and I introduced myself with my pronouns. Yeah. and I noticed like a lot of the people kind of like stumbled a little bit oh, or just like turned their heads a little bit yeah right. they weren't used to it mm-hmm. so that was that was an interesting experience but it was fine like the people who went after me use their pronouns that's sweet yeah so it was uh, yeah. cool I, the first time it happened to me in person i was going on a backpacking trip with mm-hmm. some people who identified as they them some of them weren't cisgendered right mm-hmm. and we all like my group and their group had an introductory thing and they said, hi, you know, I'm G. You can go call me like I go by they, them or she, her sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, I've never done this before. Mm-hmm. This is sweet. <laughs> yeah, you really get to know somebody. Yeah, it's it's good. And it's it's a trusting and vulnerable thing, too. You know, mm-hmm. it is, of course, a scary thing, I'm sure, for a lot of people who, who aren't cisgender to say, like, here are my pronouns. They don't match what you might assume. Or I use they, them pronouns. Like, for a lot of people, if they came out with that first thing, like, it, to a lot of people in Ohio, if you came and said, I use they, them pronouns, mm-hmm. you're getting a negative response back, yeah. you know? So it's also... A vulnerable thing. There's so many. There's so many different layers to yeah, analyze it really about is. it, you know. But I, I think it's it's such a positive shift that's happening. Yeah, I'd I'd love to go insert myself into a community that's not used to it and just see how people feel about it. Mm-hmm. There's a good chance they're totally cool with yeah, it. Yeah, and as know? a cis white man and a cis white woman, like it's you know we should be doing it. Right. Like if somebody hears that from you were for me who has uh, biases or negative feelings or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever transphobia that they have going on, like they are way more likely to accept that norm into their life if they're hearing it from somebody that they're not holding those biases against. Yeah. So it's yeah. very like if the only people who use their pronouns are people who weren't cis, mm-hmm. that's that's an issue, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. You need um some representation on all sides Mm -hmm. of the gender spectrum which is not unidimensional apparently there are it shoots out in many directions absolutely (laughs) um which is which is just it's just so much fun so you're you're a political science major yes i am how'd you get there 
I came to Stanford as a computer science major because how could I not? You know, I'm going to Stanford. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? You said you can't you can't throw a rock into the yeah. distance without hitting a computer science right. major. <laughs> okay, you know what? Here's another thing that I love about coming from Ohio to Stanford. We have mm-hmm. a lot of little sayings in Ohio that make some heads turn. Yeah, like something we totally I say do. a lot is like. Um, it's so close. I can throw a rock to it or you can't throw a rock without hitting. Like it, yeah. I always say like at Stanford, you can't throw a rock without hitting a CS major. Right. And when I use that like phrasing of you can't throw a rock, mm-hmm. everyone's like, what are you doing? What yeah. are you talking about? What does <laughs> like, that mean? That? But yeah. yeah, like there's a lot of CS majors at Stanford. And I was one of them for <laughs> three months. I wow. don't know. I think Stuck I just realized when I got to Stanford that I strongly believe in the philosophy that everybody should find their niche and do something good inside of it. Mm -hmm. And if everybody in a society, like let's say you have a society of a hundred people, they're all computer science majors. They're all great at it. They're all working on it. Yeah. You're going to have an insane iPhone in 10 years. <laughs> it's going to be really full of features. Nobody's developing agriculture. Everybody's starving. There's no literature. Like there's yeah. nothing, you know? So I think I just realized that I can see this world of so many people who are doing so many great things in tech and I don't feel as inspired them. I don't feel as passionate as them. Mm -hmm. Something I feel way more excited about is political science. Right. So I'm going to do political science. And you've taken a very uh, globalized approach to political science, right? Your internships Mm -hmm. um, have involved like immigration things Mm -hmm. that you did. One with the UN Mm -hmm. studying Middle East politics so it was um i was doing research projects about violent conflict Mm -hmm. pretty much that's kind of a a really broad way to put it but yeah i've definitely taken a more international approach i think i should probably be an international relations major Uh, but but i declared too early (laughs) whatever so (laughs) it's okay like it's it's fun right and what have your studies done for your perspective on our place as Americans in the world. Gosh, I mean, I think one of the biggest perspective shifts I've had since coming to Stanford, whether that's becoming really close with international students in different contexts or doing my internships that are more international focused or taking classes that open my eyes, is just how much Americans have a tendency to only think about America and to think about America as like the goal, like the goal of everyone in the world is Mm -hmm. to come to America and America is the peak of everything. And, you know, America is so this or so that. And also the idea that like our our responsibility (laughs) as Americans is Mm -hmm. to understand American politics and domestic politics. Yeah. We, America thinks so much less about international Mm -hmm. politics than a lot of other developed countries, which is interesting. Right. Um, and what do you think needs to happen to indoctrinate, um, United States citizens and residents into this globalized perspective? Because I I really think that part of the reason we're having this political chaos Mm -hmm. and this environmental crisis and this fallout is the total lack of this globalized perspective. Absolutely. What do you, do do you see a, a path um, you know, the thing is, there there's a clear path. We can pinpoint a few reasons why America ended up like this. Mm-hmm. One of the main reasons was the deregulation of radio journalism television that we really? saw in, you know, a little bit in the 60s, a lot during the Reagan era. 
and it was what what kind of regulatory um measures were applied to them before then yeah so we used to have um one, one example is something called the fairness doctrine like th- there were all these regulations in place that basically would say if you are a broadcasting network even privately owned you're gonna have to give equal time to mm-hmm. all candidates if you present a perspective Whoa. we're gonna require you to you don't have to spend the same amount of time but you have to present the alternative side of the perspective wow. we're gonna require you to wild. not just give us sort of like drama that everybody wants see but you have to give us stuff that's going to be useful for public information mm-hmm. and you know even like some models in other countries are like in uh switzerland there is a requirement that like a third of your content has to be i think the term is like public bridging where it's mm-hmm. content that tries to bring people like together from different sides of political spectrums and wow. tries to educate everybody or like a lot of European countries, they'll require during soccer games at the breaks, it'll be like two minutes of informational broadcasting. Mm. Here's what's going on politics. Here's what's going on with climate change. And it's like right. people just, there's a lot more accidental exposure in other countries. Mm. Um, and when we had this sort of deregulation, you know, a lot of that went out the window. There was deregulation about like how many radio stations can one person own, you know? So we mm. started seeing these monopolies emerge and Monopoly on top of, of that, media. yeah, we don't have uh, the biggest, I, I would say like the most striking defining difference between the U.S. and other developed countries in terms of our media is the lack of a publicly owned media outlet at the forefront of our media. So mm. when private companies are just competing for more of the market share, of course, they're going to put out a bunch of bull SHIT. You can say it. I don't know if I can do it. I'm not going to do it. Bullshit. A bunch of pooby doopy. Okay. That is just going to get viewers in, you yeah. know? Whereas if we had a publicly funded organization, you know, we have NPR. Yeah. People listen to NPR, sure. I don't want to mm-hmm. hate on NPR. I love NPR. I'm a huge NPR gal. Yeah. I wish they were more funded than they were, but like, look at you know, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Right. It's the leading media outlet in the UK, mm-hmm. publicly funded. And because they're publicly funded, they don't have to worry about just eating up the market share with a bunch mm-hmm. of crap because they're yeah. getting money, you know? Right. So they're not worried about dying. We had this era of deregulation and the emergence of these media conglomerates like Fox and CNN and all of that. And now we're in a space where we have this cycle of, we only want to hear about what's going on in America. We want to hear about the horse race of politicians like Mm -hmm. going against each other. And like, that's what we hear. We don't want to hear about what's going on in the UK or Africa or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, we've made such a media spectacle of ourselves that these politicians and characters are are exactly that. They're characters to the rest of the world. Somehow, everybody in France knows about like the front runners <laughs> of our political races, and, and you know the the figureheads, the to- the talking heads on the media organizations. Um, it's just a circus. Right, right, it really is. And, you know, of course, part of that is America is undeniably a huge part of the, uh, like, global makeup of mm-hmm. politics. You know, we have 
we've made a name for ourselves. We're important. We have a lot of influence, all that. So like, of course people are going to pay attention to us in that regard. But Mm -hmm. I definitely think we've seen a shift in the last five years of now we've got a group of people that are just watching to watch a reality show. Yeah, totally. Uh, Something I was curious about Stanford in particular, was like, how would you describe its political makeup, its political demography? Mm -hmm. I think it is overwhelmingly liberal Mm -hmm. as imagined. But I think there's a lot more conservatives than people think yeah. there are. I was curious. I was. I feel like there is. There's the Hoover Institute. Yeah. Right. The that's Hoover m- Institute. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> like it's kind shade. of a shady, shady place. There's a lot of. There's a lot of questionable. I mean, this is of course all my opinion and my thoughts, and I'm very much saying that so I don't get sued. I. <laughs> personally believe that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of shady money going on with the hoover institution yeah um and this is some there's a book about it that you can read and form your own thoughts i can't remember it's called it might be called like dark money or something okay and basically if you don't know the hoover institution is like a conservative think tank at stanford and i'm sure a lot of positive stuff goes on there i have friends who do research there Mm -hmm. it is like kind of a meme on campus yeah yeah a little bit don't doubt it right there's i mean i think the conservative are just a little bit scared especially Mm. because it's stanford specifically we have a really interesting uh group for the conservatives so like we have the stanford dems which are like pretty chill like it's a lot of democrats but like it's not you know they're not Mm -hmm. doing anything crazy they're like bringing democratic speakers getting people to vote and stuff but then we have the stanford college republicans yeah i don't even want to talk about that Uh, they're gonna come for me yeah they're basically the like leading uh conservative group on campus and not to say anything about my opinion of the truth to this but they have a reputation of being a little insane oh right (laughs) yeah yeah there have been some instances there have been some instances okay well for the for the sake of our throats maybe we should leave it at that yeah (laughs) (laughs) leave it at that all right i've got an important question um so what's the coolest freckle cluster on your on your body? I have one. I have one on the leg that looks a little bit like a guitar. What? But I think the defining one is the like little, I don't even know what side of my face it's on. I have like mm-hmm. a planet that looks like it has a moon next to it. Let me, let me look close. Hold on. It's like dark under my eye. Oh, no, yeah. It's, it's it? under your your right eye. Yeah, okay, yeah, I yeah. think that's right. And it yeah. has like one next to it that's like also a little darker. It's <laughs> so the one rad. that like when men want to flirt with me, they're like, is that a star and a moon? Jesus, what kind that's of men? Well, that's like some pro level flirting right there. Is it? I think it's kind of cheesy. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe kind of cheesy. But I've, oh, I just realized I'm bad at flirting. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> my coolest freckle cluster is a heart-shaped thing on my arm. You've shown me. I it's always wonderful. talk about it because I Do love it. Do you think you've lost any of the frecklage on your face over the years? No. Really? Well, maybe. Yeah. I was I looking guess... at pictures of us when we were little the other day, yeah. and I almost think both of us have lost a little frecklage. Yeah, no. Um, I, I could see that. I, I remember seeing, I think I know the pictures you're talking about, yeah. which is like 11 or 12 or yeah. something. And I do specifically remember how bright they were. Get them tattooed on your face. Yeah, that would be an option. Okay, thoughts on this. This just sparked a wonderful question in my head. So 
we, I don't know if you've experienced this, but growing up, I would sometimes be like low-key bullied for the freckles, which is the dumbest thing I know. But mm. it would happen that like people would come into the pizza restaurant I worked at all the time and little yeah. kids would be like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your, like you have a skin disease or something. What? And it was Little very, kids said that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, little kids, they don't what? know. Like what if they've never seen someone with a ton of freckles? And like in high school, it wasn't well, really cool to have freckles. that's not that uncommon. I don't know. But Maybe. I think people who have like way more freckles than us probably get it more. Yeah. But I would say that like freckles are like a, just a little bit frowned upon when we were in high school but now there's like fake freckles is a massive market makeup yeah, brands are it. all coming out with like fake freckles like every tiktok tutorials like how to do fake freckles like holy what do you shit. think what do you think of this i think i think i'm so happy about it right i'm literally it's like i, I will gloat for the rest of my life coming from the bottom of <laughs> of like the uh face freckleage um <laughs> social hierarchy too. Frecklage. Yeah. Is yeah. that a word? Frecklage. I want to get a linguist on here to talk about that word. It's beautiful. We, it's a beautiful word. It's a great word. Frecklage. Um, we can contact the Oxford Dictionary. Do you know how many words are in the Oxford Dictionary? English words. Um, 679,000? Holy fuck. I thought you were going to say something less. It's like 170,000. <laughs> now my number sounds shitty. But most people only know like a couple tens of thousands of words. That's still insane. Yeah, wow, that's a lot of words. Yeah, I know. If you ever go to like Oxford Dictionary random word generator, you don't, you've just never heard of any of them. It's pretty sweet. That's so fun. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't wait to do that. Give it a go. That sounds yeah, wonderful. It's a, it's a legitimate blast. Um, yeah, something else that we should talk about on the subject of um, skin and meat uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, is what's your opinion of plant-based meats? Plant-based meats. I'm here for the drama. I'm here for the <laughs> spectacle. <laughs> so I love a good plant-based meats. Yeah. I'll eat my fair share of them. They sometimes are packed with protein like I'm sometimes here for it. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. And then sometimes it's what I need if I'm trying to get shredded. Give me that 14 grams of protein totally. packed in that fake chicken stick. Yeah. But what the defining feature of <laughs> plant-based meats is mm -hmm. when you have a non-vegan around and you whip one out. Yeah. Oh my God, why are you vegan and trying to eat meat? Just eat meat. Why yeah, would you eat it? This right. tastes nothing like chicken. I haven't eaten chicken Bullshit. in five years. I couldn't tell you what it tastes like. Yeah. This tastes good to me. Plus, you ever had those Beyond sausages? Oh, the Beyond sausages are insane. Yeah, wild. Impossible how, meat. How did, they, how did they make it happen? They have come a long way. It, you, well, you, it, they use this compound called heme, which is mm. like what is like kind of like the flavor, like the meaty, bloody flavor, but yeah. you can derive it from plants. And they stuck it in a sausage and gave it to all us vegans to poopy our pants over. Damn. It's so good. kind of sounds like the name of a goblin. Heme. <laughs> <laughs> That's my first impression anyway. All right. Either way, like every, I literally, this is so funny. It's almost a meme in my house now. It's like, I, I get this stuff all the time to make for lunch. Mm-hmm. And every time I cook it, somebody's walking into the kitchen saying, wow, it smells so good in here. It's it like smells amazing. <laughs> it smells amazing. Every, every time. Beyond Sausage will blow your mind. Yeah. It'll blow your mind. Everybody try it. This yeah, is an give, ad give for Beyond Sausage. Beyond Sausage. All right. Um, so this is the final thing I want to talk about for the podcast, but it doesn't mean we have to end soon okay. because it's, it's really, we can get deep into the weeds for this one. I'm so excited. Yeah. So if, if the Trumps... And this is this is all of the Trumps, all like the, the whole Trumps. extended yes. family, and that includes Kimberly Guilfoyle, okay. Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, 
who did the really freaky like totalitarianism speech yes. at the RNC. Yep. You might have seen it. Um, yeah. So all the Trumps are stranded on a tropical island okay. alone with no resources um, and no hope of rescue. How how does that play out? Okay, here we go. Yeah. So I'm going to expose us for a minute, you guys. Elliot sent me a few of these questions in advance, so I've been thinking about it. Okay, but good. not only have I been thinking about it, I've been talking about it. <laughs> really? I had a I good ha- four-hour conversation about this last night. I'm please, not please, 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 please. But here's the problem. Yeah. Reading your question now, I understand it, but I misread the question to right. be what would happen if you took everyone who supports Trump. Oh, like what would all the been, Trump Yeah, so if you yeah. don't mind, I would shift the question. Sure, first a go bit. go for it. And we're talking loyalists here. I have so many. I have so many thoughts about this. But here's where where we'll start. Mm-hmm. Who are they killing first? Is the question. I mean, I think they're gonna like sort of do a survival of the fittest situation. Yeah. Here's what I'm thinking. What like, if some people show up on the island that they think would be outsiders, like people mm-hmm. who secretly support Trump? Like, what if Jill Biden shows up on there? Oh, they're like you like will right. be right, you know, right? Like people like they would expose the the snowflake libs. Yeah, first they yeah. would find them among the ranks. Like, what if Jill Biden just? I don't even know. Maybe she doesn't really want Joe to be president. Like, right. I don't know. What she, like, what if she shows up on there? Not she to say might, anything about it. Right? There. Like. Who knows? So I think mm-hmm. they would weed out those people first. They maybe yeah. are they spies? Why are they there? I you don't think know. they're just like that's who they would eat first. Yes, right? of that would course. sustain them for a few days. Maybe they would kill Ben Shapiro right off the bat. No, that dude Ben Shapiro would have a literal swarm of little like army loyalists that you just think? love him. Yeah, uh, conservatives love Ben Shapiro. He just can't listen to him. You can't, but people do. The voice, the voice just like, do you want to listen to that while you're stranded right. on an Ben island? Shapiro straight up would have like droves of people wow, protecting him. Wow, so maybe he's their leader. He, he could, he could be. Interesting. Or maybe the Trumps, because the Trumps are there. Okay. Right? Yeah. So they're yeah, obviously, they're there, they're there. They're, they're eating. <laughs> they're gonna they'd probably have a dedicated amount of people who would sacrifice themselves oh absolutely so that they could they could eat them absolutely yeah that's gonna happen um i would think they could see they might see ben shapiro as a threat interesting because so many people love him so maybe the trumps would take him out yeah and ben shapiro is not a huge trump supporter right like, uh, exactly I, you know we'll exactly see, some, but here's here's where I started really thinking. I was thinking about the question. I was having fun. And then yeah. this question hit me and I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. So let's paint, let's give a little context. What we're doing right now as America, what China is doing, what the whole world is doing mm-hmm. is competing existentially to prove what is the best form of society. The yeah. United States wants to be in the front uh, economically, education, everything, and mm-hmm. say that is because we are such a great democracy. China yes. wants to prove to us that you can grow your economy and have your people thrive under a more authoritarian style of government. I mean, technically mm-hmm. China is a democracy, but of course they have yeah. like tighter restrictions, all that. So you know what we're saying. There's like this this constantly, this existential fight happening. Mm-hmm. And this question came after I'd spent some time pondering, well, what would happen if you had an island far yeah. enough away from the Trump island that they're never interacting of all of the Bernie supporters? Right. I think it's really fair to say that the Trump island is going to pretty quickly go to survival of the fittest. Yeah. But- what are, you know, is, is, and they all know, like, the reason we're here is Trump supporters, mm-hmm. but the Bernie people, 
is there going to be a difference or is it such a human thing to have to be surviving that's still survival of the fittest? It is. Right? The Bernie supporters would be savages. It would, be, you, it, it would be nice to think that they would be very organized and like take the situation logically. But when they're not eating and they're not drinking, they are going to turn into savages. And it doesn't matter what their political leanings are in a civilized world. That will all go down the tank. I would expect that the Trump Island and the Bernie Island have similar fates. And that's that some people are going to be savages. It's going to be survival on the fittest for both of them. Yeah. It's going to be a very testy period initially, although I'm sure the peaceful communes would form on both islands. Yeah. Um, in this situation, it's, it's going to get messy. Let's say both societies have what they need to develop. Let's say what you can say stuff? that both societies are going to exist with people alive for the next 500 to 1,000 years. Is it like Lord of the Flies? Sure. Did you read that? Yeah. Where there's like fruit yeah, and stuff like, like yeah. they can eat. Yeah, yeah like let's okay. say they can eat, they can they can develop. Mm-hmm. What what is the difference? Like which I what are that different islands going to look like? You know who's going to be in front of mm-hmm. the other one? There's so much argument about how capitalism drives innovation. Yeah, but is is what's going to you know how does that play out on the Bernie Island if they're right. starting with nothing? Is that argument even valid? Yeah. Do the Bernie supporters know that coming from the climate we're in and find a way to innovate anyways? Mm-hmm. There's so much, I think, on the Bernie Island, I think there's a lot less diversity of political thought than on the Trump Island. Mm -hmm. I think the Trump Island has, you know, very intelligent people who are just purely thinking about the economy. Yeah. Not to say that I agree with them in the slightest, but then I also think there's people very, you know, low on the IQ spectrum who've maybe gotten caught up in the giant advertising marketing scheme. Like you just have so much diversity. True, true. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. But I just, you know, what are, what are the two islands going to look like and who's going to win that existential Mm -hmm. fight that the U S and China and the whole world is fighting right now? You know, I think that on the Bernie Island, there would honestly be a lot more cooperation Mm -hmm. and a more productive society overall. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is based on research mm-hmm. of of, of uh, monkeys. Interesting. Um, let me. I can't remember the exact types of monkeys. It was that that Stanford professor that I love so much, Robert Sapolsky, oh, yeah. did did this whole uh, sociological analysis. I guess sociology isn't the right word for it, but an, an analogy of the social structures of this tribe of. Uh, I'm gonna get the monkeys wrong, and maybe they weren't even monkeys. They might have been chimps. I'll say monkeys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting obsessed with the details. Anyway, um, there is a huge resort, human resort, mm-hmm. like nearby to this tribe. Um, and the monkeys who weren't very cooperative, the individual big guys, the mean ones, right? The ones who were like stomping on everyone else and like weren't very good at socializing, but thrived because they were so alpha, mm-hmm. like went and had a little territory war over this big pile of trash that this resort was leaving, right? Because it had tons of food in it, you know? So essentially the tribe split into two groups and that was like the hyper males, like the super uh, antisocial ones um, and the ones who were a bit more meek, right? Interesting. Um, The ones who weren't so social. That sounds so parallel to the male landscape at Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Oh, we'll keep listening. This is crazy. Okay. So- what happens when you eat trash? 
Tell me. You die. You die. Okay. You die. Yes. You die because it's terrible for okay. you. And you're not used to it. It's out of your environment. You end up um, eating shit and you and you die. So okay. this was natural selection, essentially. Wow. And what it's selected for was a group of very social, altruistic monkeys who weren't very combative and were just nice. It's like the nice guys, right? It was, it was a whole tribe of nice guys. And what they found was an extreme amount of community. They usually measure like social fluidity by how willing females are to groom people. Mm-hmm. Usually a new monkey comes in, takes them months maybe even a year to get groomed by a female. And this in this like hippie community, like the females were grooming the new guys like immediately. And what? it kind of, yeah. So so basically it was just like this really cool utopia of monkeys. And, and I think the personality traits of Bernie supporters are yeah. more aligned with that group than the trash people. Or the, <laughs> the trash people. <laughs> fuck. The trash monkeys, right? Yeah, so, I mean that's so interesting. Yeah, I really think that it's a higher chance on the Trump Island due to these personality traits of inner fighting, mm-hmm. of vicious competition. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some of that on Bernie Island. Don't sure, get me wrong. I mean. But they, I think that they will persevere and they're going to be, you know, smoking island reefer and chilling, basically. <laughs> you know, that's that's what you do when wow. <laughs> you're on an island. Yeah, like what are you just surviving? <laughs> yeah. But whoever builds a boat first is just, they really have the upper Yikes. hand. Yikes, yeah. Yeah. Whoever gets a boat first. Man. Who would get a boat first? I think the Trump supporters would probably have more, like, hands-on expertise on building boats. There might be some uh, colonizer motivation going into that. Yeah, totally. Like, look at that island over there. All right, so it's been 200 years, and they've developed for 200 years however that's looked okay and they both get boats at the same time okay who's winning who equal population i think who's winning wow do the trumpsters have their guns no 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 guns so let's think let's think what are they fighting with are they trying to make a peaceful treaty are they Going at it with the knives they forage? Are they fist fighting? Like, let's well, say. What do you think each- has happened in okay. their development periods? So, let's say they each have one boat at the same time. It mm-hmm. would seem reasonable to me that there's either going to be a sneak attack. So, then the question is who's, right. you know, who's going to yeah. act first? And that's actually like a really. A really interesting concept in political science, the idea that Mm. so many wars are started uh, because a country is just scared that the other country is going to act first. So neither country would actually act if they both knew they wouldn't act, but Mm. it's in both of their best interests to not be acting second. Yeah. So they act first. So I can say, I think it's fair to say that even if both islands wanted to remain peaceful we would see that principle that's been studied play out so who's acting first well who's more scared who trusts the other side more and i feel like the bernie side would have less trust for Mm. the trump side and be a little more scared of the trump side i I could see that right because Mm -hmm. i think there's there's going to be some more like sheer brute on the trump side right they've got some connotations you know right this is Unfortunately, a personal battle. Yes, the political battle has become a personal. Very battle much here. so. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see the the Bernie Island sneak attacking with their singular boat, 
<laughs> just a single boat? Well, if, they if both sides have one, one boat. boat, I mean, if they they are, might have a bunch of boats. But if, from the moment they have one boat, mm-hmm. the other side can come sneak attack. This is true. So as soon as both get a boat, the Bernies better get over there and dismantle the Trump's boat. You know? Yeah, they better. I mean, the boats are going to be the highest priority targets. Right. I'd imagine. Absolutely. Um, hide your boat. Hide your boat. They'll build the boats on the opposite sides of the islands. So they couldn't see. see There's the going to have to be lookout teams. Like they're going to monitor the boats too. I mean, a sneak attack could be hard. Yeah. Like when I first presented the scenario, I was thinking they just ride on over and attack the boat. But if both sides are smart, they're going to be surveying the boat, surveilling the boat. Yeah. You're going to ask the boat questions but, about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to have some really great eyesight though. Cause For like, sure. I'm assuming these islands aren't like close enough. Like maybe you could barely make out a boat on the shore. I don't know how big are the islands. Maybe they have like tiki torches. <laughs> Trump side definitely does. <laughs> Chill. <laughs> oh, jam! Is it that intense? That was dark. Are you referring to the? <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a little dark. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um. This whole conversation is dark, <laughs> but it's hilarious. Um, yeah, you know, I'd hope that they ended up cooperating. I feel like after 200 years, maybe they'd settle their differences a little bit. I don't know. I mean, America, what what are we like 250 about? We're pretty, we're about there. Shit. That, I guess when you put it in that perspective, like 200 years is a long time. We've come a long way. We're still a very young country comparatively, though. I know. People don't think about that. And not at all. We are still the American experiment. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Like, people usually think that they are above and they are, like, developed past the struggles and the issues of people who built the nations that they live in absolutely just because we have new technology Mm -hmm. and better this and better that doesn't mean that we're fundamentally different people it doesn't mean that the united states is a solid entity Mm -hmm. right it was your your friend who said the united states will fall just like every other great nation yeah and that's a scary thought it is but it's also historically something that's true absolutely um I think a lot of people are worried this is going to happen sooner than they thought. I don't know. I feel like not enough people are thinking about it. Don't think so? I don't see very much. I don't see really any people talking about. I mean, I see. I guess I do see a lot of conversation more recently about the democratic backsliding that America has experienced. Mm -hmm. But the thing about slipping from a democracy to a more authoritarian country is that it just happens in the blink of an eye without you noticing Mm. and it's like one little thing at a time and then all of a sudden you look back in 20 years and look you can see very clearly all the democratic backsliding that's happened Mm -hmm. but it's slow yeah slow slow from a human perspective Mm -hmm. 20 years is the blink of an eye yeah um when we're talking on a universal scale here. Right. I, I mean, that's true. That's scale, true. Historical scale. Like if you think about just how many precedents that have been set by Trump for mm-hmm. power grabs that we haven't seen before. Right. It's really jarring. I mean, I feel like the solution might be fundamental shift in governmental framework. I, absolutely. I think that's totally how it needs to be. But we can't have a revolutionary war right like what what I mean, what is it what is a modern reimagination of a nation yeah so look like? 
there's a, a concept in political science called soaking the rich. And it's the idea of like, why don't the majority of the m- most people aren't the 1%. Why doesn't mm-hmm. the 99% just eat the 1% metaphorically? Yes. And I think we, when you look at America, you can see a very clear divide now between the idea of like the citizen wanting their rights and wanting to have a voice and the government. It's almost like you can parallel that 99 and 1% to citizens in the government, which Mm -hmm. is such a hard thing to grasp when we're in a country where our citizens are supposed to be our government. But it's the idea that we have these regulations in place that aren't in the best interest of the citizens and are Mm -hmm. only in best interest of the government like the idea that we don't have term limits the you know campaign contributions like all these electoral college yeah all these things that benefit the actual people in the government Mm -hmm. while hurting the citizens which really make the government into a separate class yeah and why don't we just eat the rich well because they're running our lives yeah it's terrifying they they really are are the backbone of the institutions which we rely on. And I think there's no great answer for how do we start a revolution. And it's the idea that like right now, so many people are trying to start a revolution, you know? Yeah. We're in it. We, I mean, we certainly are. Maybe it's not what we thought it was going to be. I guess people have a connotation of what a revolution looks like and that's all out war. We we've even almost seen a little bit of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I I have a really close friend who lived through the Arab Spring and when all of the BML riots were at their peak mm-hmm. in the news and everything he was seeing, he was like this looked exactly like the revolution in my country. Wow. People lighting the courthouse on fire, people just done Mm -hmm. uh rioting you know so like that's that's a part of the revolution we've seen we've seen a lot of organizing a lot of communities built a lot of great people stepping into government that we didn't have before you know and we just don't know if it's working yeah like when do we say that we won the revolution measure i don't know can we can we have it um using the framework of government that we've been provided i think I think that we can work with what we have. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing to do is to make some fundamental changes to that framework. Yeah. Get big money out of politics, get corporate money out of politics. You know, Mm -hmm. as soon as we, we've been so on the cusp of that legislation, as soon as we get it passed, I think we can start seeing some really meaningful changes, Mm -hmm. but it's just so hard with that paywall. We also have to wrestle with the propaganda war that's happening, facilitated by the big tech companies and media and their role in it. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that we would shy away from a revolutionary mindset if we had the regulations on the media like we were talking about before? Gosh, I wonder if we had a more fair and equitable presentation of the state of the United States, if we would all be a little bit more on the same page about certain things. Mm. Like if everybody's fed the same information about the pure facts of the state of education, I'm sure we'd have a lot more people supporting education reform. You know, yeah, but it's a good point. It's just how how much there is echo chambers and there is misinformation. It's really hard to get everybody to mm-hmm. even agree on the state of things first, and then secondly, rally around that. You know, so I yeah. think if if we were all better informed, that could only lead to positive changes. What are the odds 
that we're going to be on a list after we release this podcast. I, what do you mean a list? Like an FBI list or something? Yeah. Or the CIA or the NSA or something even scarier. Gosh, I've had a reasonable amount of my colleagues apply to work at the CIA and FBI. To and realize insane. that they already have a list. They totally have a list. Oh, First yeah. of all, they totally oh, yeah, have a that's, list. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a given. They need it. They should have yes. a list. But just like the amount of, uh, like I had a friend recently apply to work at the FBI mm-hmm. and they asked her, have you ever smoked weed? And she said she didn't want to lie. So she mm-hmm. said yes, but she's 21. It's legal in the state. She didn't think it'd be a problem, mm-hmm. but it disqualified her Yeah, because like, it's not, it's not legal nationally. Like she should have, or federally should have expected that, you right. know, like that wasn't that surprising. I was like, yeah, I mean, it's the FBI, mm-hmm. but she was like so worried that she was going to be on their hit list and that she was For like having smoked weed yeah. before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was oh, like, oh baby, fuck. baby, baby. Yeah. <laughs> bigger problems uh yeah definitely i heard that the cia and fbi have like a major shortage of computer scientists on account of that rule really yeah that's hilarious <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh my god i don't know if it's true or not but that's what i heard maybe that will be the driving force of federally legalizing recreational yeah. marijuana use the cia <laughs> cannot get itself together yeah uh well you'd love to see it because so i i want a bunch of stoners running our intelligence agencies let me tell you what (laughs) it'd be a different world (laughs) totally (laughs) what kind of stuff would they investigate uh probably just the normal stuff stoners are just people i mean the cia they've really gone out of their way to Mm -hmm. to do some bad things no shit (laughs) i think i think if we got some you know stoner tech bros from silicon valley in there they might chill out a little. Yeah, maybe that's the uh, shift that we need. Anyway, Katie, this has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've had a wonderful time. Yeah, it's been super fun. Um, hopefully, we can do another one in the future. Okay. How do you end these? Like, what do you just... Bye. Haven't figured it out yet. Right. Like, normally on YouTube videos, I'm like, comment down below or something, you know? Should we just have a nice high five and then I'll just end it right after the sound? Okay, the let's do it. Ready? Ready? Thank you guys for listening to this very special episode of the Hypnothesis Podcast. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and smash that MF subscribe button, yo. And leave us a rating and a review. I don't like begging for things, but it really does help the podcast. I appreciate you listeners. I hope you're having a great day and a wonderful week and an even better life. Thanks for tuning in. Once again, you can follow the Hypnothesis podcast at hypnothesis underscore pod on Instagram or Twitter, or you can find Katie by searching The Cath Path on Google or going to thecathpathcollegeapps.com or searching it on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or whatever else is out there. I don't even know. Anyway, have a good one. Peace.